are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Well, today, Paula, we need to talk about meth. Oh, yes, we yes. do. <laughs> hey. Everyone wants to talk about it. All providers who are involved somehow with the substance using population want to talk about this because it is a big, big problem. I saw two patients last week, two days in a row with meth use disorders. One was actively using and one was about 18 months and both, you know, obviously suffering the effects. So it, yeah, this is very prevalent. Oh yeah. Amphetamine use, it's a little bit geographic. So we have um, the Southwest and the North West parts of the country being heavily affected by methamphetamine use. Um, but, you know, it's not that uncommon throughout the whole country. And according to the NASDA study, which is the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, I guess it's not a study, but it's data collection system in 2017, 5.4% of the population have tried methamphetamine at least once. And 1.6 million people use meth on a regular basis. And it remains one of the most commonly used substances in the world. And in a lot of places, in a lot of communities, even though we have high awareness around the opioid epidemic and opioids as a threat, really, I think methamphetamine poses an even higher threat. And it's a drug that contributes to a lot of personal, social, medical, legal consequences it, it, it just it just is pervasive in terms of its uh, negative effect oh you are absolutely right so let's just d- dive in a little bit so the neurobiology of methamphetamine this is different how it compares to cocaine use so the neurotransmitters that are being affected so compared to cocaine what it does is it's causing excessive release of the dopamine and serotonin in in norepinephrine and then the difference is cocaine mainly is blocking the reuptake of dopamine. but And so it's chewing up those receptors. And that's why meth is so damaging, particularly when you have long-term and daily use. And you and when we see those patients, that's why they see this huge dysphoria sometimes years later, because they have really damaged those receptors. They don't come out unscathed like we sometimes will see, you know, patients who have used some of these other substances. And don't you see that, Paula? Yeah, you do. And it has to do uh, neurobiologically with what you were just discussing with this marked um, concentration of dopamine release in the neurotransmitters of the brain, and particularly the nucleus accumbens. So Mm -hmm. when, when people use methamphetamine, they get a release in the thousands percent in terms of the in terms of the nucleus accumbens. So you get say a thousand percent of the cells in the nucleus accumbens instantly drop all their dopamine into the synapse. With cocaine, it's still a potent stimulant with potent dopaminergic effects, but you get about three hundred to four hundred percent of the um, of the dopamine dopaminergic activity in those cells of the of the brain of the midbrain um, again as you mentioned mostly due to reuptake inhibition but the magnitude of dopaminergic um, salience in the brain with methamphetamine is much more significant with cocaine and that is what we think contributes to long-term profound effects is this neurotoxicity from the much higher concentration of dopamine in the brain 
over repeated episodes and also the mechanism being slightly different that you have direct release of the dopamine transporter system as opposed to just reuptake inhibition and that's something to remember with uh, with our patients with methamphetamine in terms of one of the reasons why we have this long-term uh, chronic effects with with folks. No, they love that as a test question. So remember that. And I think that's really if you haven't ever listened to one of George Koob's lectures, he he does this great. So those are great ones. And he has a really good diagram that I've seen that really explains that really clear. And I think that explains some of the effects that you see just in the intoxication period. Patient presents in the ER. What do they look like when you have acute amphetamine? intoxication. Well, typically you have the euphoria, grandiosity, right? And then we have the paranoid behavior, anxiety, insomnia, the hypertension, tachycardia. And the key difference here is the dilated pupils. And then they also tend to have the the formification, the things crawling on you, the bugs crawling on you. So that kind of feeling, that's when you start thinking the stimulant intoxication. Right. Formication is really common with methamphetamine intoxication. One of the things that you will also notice with methamphetamine intoxication versus cocaine or crack intoxication versus opioid intoxication is that methamphetamine intoxication um, lasts a lot longer. So 50% mm-hmm. of the drug, the half-life is about five, 12 hours with methamphetamine mm-hmm. versus one hour for cocaine. So you have folks who typically they'll talk about going on a run. So they're running on meth. They're intoxicated with methamphetamine for much longer period than cocaine. So one hit or one use of methamphetamine will give these effects that you were just discussing. Hypothermia, hypertension, increased respiration, euphoria, decreased appetite, aggressive behavior, psychotic type symptoms. Whereas cocaine users, we often just don't even capture them in in a medical setting because uh, the intoxication syndrome may be over. And it's the almost complete opposite syndrome to opioid intoxication, which is everything CNS depressed. Um, as opposed to CNS elevated. Typically, the deaths that you're usually going to see with meth, it's usually within the two hours, so that just a couple of hours after use. And it's going to come from seizures. You're going to see, you know, CVAs, MI, and it's sudden. Sudden cardiac death is the most common. Can I talk Uh, a little minute about just management of um, acute methamphetamine intoxication? Yeah, absolutely. We need to. Right. The thing, you know, you want to manage anxiety and agitation by placing the patient in a quiet, non-threatening environment, providing them with reassurance. Mm -hmm. Um, The medication of choice are benzodiazepines. Typically, we give IM or IV diazepam or lorazepam, and you just you could keep administering it. Um, That's kind of the same approach for the paranoia or the the psychosis. Uh, You can also give a high potency antipsychotic such as haloperidol or a SGA such as olanzapine. If you need to, if they if they present hyperthermic, you want to monitor their body temperature and cool them down, especially if their body temperature is over 102 degrees. You use external cooling with cold water or ice packs, etc. Seizures, as you mentioned, those are fairly common, and that could be a cause um, of aspiration and death. Again, diazepam or lorazepam would be the medication of choice, specifically IV diazepam, uh, about 15 to 20 mg per kg. Um, IV and um, monitor, monitoring patients for their hypertension and treating with benzodiazepines um, or if their diastolic reaches emergent levels, uh, diastolic greater than 120, you can give phentolamine. 
cardiac arrhythmias you want to watch by telemetry you know using a telemetry mm-hmm. approach and doing ecg etc and again cooling giving benzodiazepines and um, watching for myocardial infarction and ams syndrome um, yeah so those are just kind of the things basically if you have a methamphetamine um, intoxicated patient you want to try and calm them down keep them uh, reassured and in a non-threatening environment, give them benzodiazepines, monitor their blood pressure, their body temperature, and watch for seizures and arrhythmias. That's kind of the bottom line uh, for these folks. Absolutely. Long-term, so outpatient. A patient comes to you who's not acutely intoxicated, but is using on a daily basis. What do you do with them? We don't have any approved FDA-approved medications at this time, so these are off-label uses. But the, we do have a few medications that, in some case studies, and that are showing some, just, you know, some good data there. Right. I mean, yeah. it's an area of increase of intense interest because yes. methamphetamine use disorder is really devastating to people and very difficult to recover from. Unlike opioid use disorder, or alcohol use disorder, and tobacco use disorder, we don't have you know good solutions mm-hmm. in terms of pharmacotherapy. The best and most well studied approach we do have is contingency management, which is a behavioral community approach. But in terms of medications. Different medications over time have been studied and have been of great interest, and they kind of come into favor and then they they fade out. But we do have some that may be helpful. Um, Mirtazapine has some evidence to support its use, so mirtazapine good time. Um, That also, of course, may help with some of the anxiety and mood symptoms that patients exhibit. This is true as well for the tricyclic the tricyclics, specifically disipramine was was studied. Now, this was quite an old study, and uh, you don't hear so much anymore of people using the uh, tricyclics to treat methamphetamine use disorder, but I think it's worth keeping up your sleeve. I've used um, tricyclics in the class. I've used nortriptyline and amitriptyline, and I've actually found them to be quite helpful, whether or not I was just treating a mood disorder or sleep, or it was actually targeting the methamphetamine cravings. I'm not sure, but I, I always think of them. Topiramate has evidence to be helpful again in a kind of an unknown mechanism, the way it modulates NMDA receptor glutamate activity. Maybe, Darlene, it's the um, mechanism of helping with impulsivity that topiramate is helpful. Do you? Do you know why or have you any thoughts on that? I think as it works as, yeah, the impulsivity and it's also that mood stabilization. I think it's definitely worth trying, especially in the right the right candidate. Uh, I definitely consider the use of uh, topiramate. Actually, gabapentin and bupropion have both been looked at. And for a while, bupropion was kind of the the favored medication to treat methamphetamine use disorder, but it, it doesn't have great evidence. It hasn't been uh, validated and followed up in big studies, but it's something to consider, again, if you have someone with major depressive disorder who otherwise hasn't had seizures and all these other things. And gabapentin may be helpful kind of in a global mechanism uh, for the right person who has some other comorbidities. The other two I think are worth mentioning are the amino acid N-acetylcysteine, or NAC. This actually has some very interesting data to back it up for the use in stimulant use disorder once people have stopped using. We think that as a precursor to some other healthy neurotransmitters uh, synthesized, which are synthesized in the brain, it may play a, a role. It takes some time to be effective, so I always tell my patients, let's get you on this amino acid. It's not likely to hurt you. 
it may help you. And the dose that has been studied there is 1,200 milligrams BID. And uh, I actually, the big residential program that I'm involved in, we have a huge, huge number of folks who have methamphetamine use disorder. And I use N-acetylcysteine quite pervasively just to give them that advantage and see if we can help their brains heal. And then the last medication, which has received some attention, and I've had a clinical response in one young patient that I treated with it is disulfiram, which is kind of interesting because how do you wrap your head around disulfiram being helpful for methamphetamine use disorder? But it blocks dopamine um, hydroxylase. In a, that, in a secondary mechanism. So, you know, we use it, of course, and we know it well for the treatment of alcohol use disorder and it uh, makes people very ill if they drink. The secondary effect of blocking the breakdown of dopamine may be helpful. And uh, I had one young patient, she was in her early 20s, really struggled with meth, meth cravings and staying um, abstinent from meth. And she had a lot of social and legal consequences. Put her on disulfiram. She was also in some intensive treatment and she, she did very well on that. So they have to have, you have to have quite a lot of buy-in because- Very, you know, no, fascinating yeah. though. Right. It's another great medication to take and it has many drug-to-drug interactions and contraindications. But, you know, we really, it's nice to have, what do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven medications. Well, the TCAs is a whole class, a whole lot more than that, but- just to think that you have something in your pocket you could try for people because really people can be quite desperate and their methamphetamine addiction, as we all know, can lead to really, really drastic uh, effects. Absolutely. And what do you do now with these reports of the fentanyl-laced methamphetamine? So are you putting patients on naltrexone? Are you discussing with them? I mean, I know when I had these two patients come in, we had that discussion. And tell me what you're doing. I, you know, you know, I gave them overdose kits and one of them who was talking to me using, I actually put them on naltrexone. You know, there was one talk that we just recently had a lecture that discussed that. And there's some data helpful there. So it, you know, and so that's, it's something to just at least warn them, you know, that this is out there. And unfortunately, that's, that's another, you know, reason for overdose. Yeah, that's you know, for those tainted meds. I have good practice, um, not only because the methamphetamine itself could be contaminated, but, you know, naltrexone is such an interesting drug. Um, mm-hmm. And the opioid receptor system is so pervasive, we don't really understand how it modulates craving. I know there's actually going to be a very big study examining methamphetamine. Yes. The use of buprenorphine for treatment of methamphetamine use disorder now by no means is that the medication right now no. used that we're no. using, but it in some way um, naltrexone has been examined and looked, and there's there's some interest in naltrexone being used purely for cravings for methamphetamine use. I was reading that um, another, they're looking another medication that's under study, uh, um, minocycline, because you know this we talked about the neurotoxicity as an effect of chronic methamphetamine use, um, which is associate is associated then with uh, central nervous system inflammation. So they're looking at anti-inflammatory medications to treat the chronic effects and to protect the neuroimmune and the cognitive effects, which I think is fascinating too. 
Yeah. Such an interesting, you think of all these different pathways and mechanisms. It'd be interesting to see these patients in the past. It's been so difficult. They come in and, and it's like you said, the legal consequences and they're struggling and, and their rate of overdose is, is still high and just death from accidents too. And so, I mean, we need to treat them. We need some more resources. So let's talk about what the standard of care is right now for methamphetamine use disorder. If you can never people into treatment, yeah, what is that right now? <laughs> right now, if if we can get them the really, you know, like you talked before, contingency management. But that's not a, if they came into my practice. You don't have, you don't have that option, right? right. Most right. people don't have that available to them. Right. We really don't have, a, you know, we talk about standard of care. We don't have that. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think the most effective treatments that we do have at this point are all behavioral. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've studied, we talked about contingency mm-hmm. management, um, which is fascinating. So that's incentivizing people into treatment and um, into maintaining um, abstinence from methamphetamine but by using random and small rewards. So we talk about the fishbowl study, which is, you know, folks engaged in treatment for every urine drug screen that is negative for methamphetamine, they get to put their hand in the fishbowl and there are random rewards in the fishbowl, anywhere from very small to a dollar um, up to gift cards of greater, um, you know, financial value. But that seemed to be very effective in helping people and motivate people into um, to sobriety. Um, the other model that's been kind of studied, and, and we don't hear about it so much anymore, I think probably because we're physicians and not therapists, but is the matrix model. Uh, and the matrix model, I think if you remember from taking our boards, it's formulated, programmed, and, and manualed 16-week behavioral treatment approach. And it, um, it it's a matrix, so it includes family therapy, behavioral therapy, one-on-one counseling, Mm 12-step facilitation, drug testing, and then also engagement in um, community non-drug related activities. And that's all we have really. I mean, more recently, um, motivational enhancement, um, you know, treatment and therapy has been examined and cognitive behavioral therapy. But Unfortunately, one of the, as we talked about, one of the problems with chronic methamphetamine use due to the neurotoxicity is long-term cognitive deficits. And sometimes people have difficulty engaging in treatment. Have you noticed that? Oh my goodness. These patients, it's, it's like you said, they, they struggle cognitively so much. Their only solution is let's engage them with counseling, especially in someone who is still actively using or intermittently there's these patients are trying to be sober but are really struggling this is so hard that's why contingency management i know that the you know there's a lot of data those studies are great but in real world of practicality trying to explain this to your staff why are you rewarding these patients for not using you really have to teach that culture <laughs> does that make sense yes. it can be hard to sometimes get that buy-in from them and so that part is difficult too but that's where you have to sometimes do that to get that person to heal long enough you know do we have enough some of the neuroplasticity here but you have to get them that few months that three months six months 18 months of sobriety 
to start to get some of that back. You know, this patient who I saw who was 18 months sober still had some severe dysphoria. Their mood was not okay. And 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 this I still I think is, you know, there may be still some organic mood there, but I think is very much related to past methamphetamine use oh, and yeah. really struggling. And so that's this is where I think, yeah, having some medications try to help them so they can engage in some of these cares. Absolutely. You know, people often will ask you, either the patient or the patient's family or colleagues, how long, how long does it take for people to recover from methamphetamine? Olkow, who, you know, she's just an incredible scientist, uh, president um, of NIDA. She's done a lot of work with George Kube in this work, in this um, arena, and studied some really landmark um, published work in back in the early 2000s on uh, with image, PET imaging and functional MRI imaging studies of, of meth users um, and looked at their brains versus normal controls one month after absence and then 14 months abstinent and showed that patients do get better. The dopamine yes. transporter systems do recover, but it takes up to, even at, four, at 14 months, they look significantly better than they did at one month abstinence, but still not like a normal control. So like yes. you said, it's going to take a lifetime. That feels kind of hopeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people can recover. They do get better, but it does take a long time. And you have to really just get abstinent time. That's what you have to fight, fight, fight for is time sober from methamphetamine at whatever cost, at whatever you can get it, however you can buy it. Talking with your patients and explaining that you are improving. This is gradual, but you are improving. I think they do need, they need that support and to know because they feel really horrible and they do for a reason. Look at those chemicals that have been damaged, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin. Those are all of your normalizing chemicals in your brain. They feel awful for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah. For opioid use disorder, what happens when they show positive for methamphetamine or amphetamine? So methamphetamines, they metabolize to methamphetamines. Uh, there's an L and a D isomer. And then the methamphetamine metabolite further metabolizes to amphetamine metabolite. So uh, it's very common for people who've used methamphetamine to have both methamphetamine and amphetamine metabolites in their urine for several days after use, probably 72 hours after acute use and up to seven days or so for chronic use. And, uh, you know, there are some um, substances which people use that can cause false positives for a methamphetamine screen especially point-of-care screens. So, for example, Vicks Vapor Rub is a classic one, and sometimes <laughs> patients will claim that they've used that. Uh, bupropion actually could cause a false positive. Selegiline is another typical one. Um, so if you have a patient who claims that they have not used methamphetamine but they're positive on their point-of-care urine drug screen, you just want to send it out, get a gas chromatography um, and just to actually make sure that this is true, especially if it changed treatment for you. Um, now, this is not the case for cocaine, right? Cocaine really only has one metabolite. It remains in the urine for one to three days. So uh, it could be in the urine for longer, uh, up to seven or even 12 days if you use it chronically at high doses. For example, someone who smokes crack, 
cocaine repeatedly. However, if you have cocaine metabolite in the urine, you can be very, very confident that the patient has used cocaine. There's really no false, um, false positives for cocaine on the urine drug screen unlike pretty much everything else on a urine drug screen. So urine drug screening for cocaine, easy if it's there, it's been used. For methamphetamine, look for either methamphetamines or amphetamines. Could be positive for 72 hours up to seven days. And there are some false positives, uh, so you may want to check it uh, for gas chromatography. Um, If you're worried and if you uh, need to confirm this for treatment or um, you know for someone's legal consequences you definitely want to delve into that some more and and always remember that this is a tool this is not a medical decision when we're using urine drug screens and so this is something that helps you decide do we need a change in a treatment plan but this does not decide that this patient relapsed and we are discharging you from our practice this is something where we sit down and say we're going to discuss these results. We're going to either, you know, and if they're saying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't relapse, then yes, we need to follow this up with additional testing. Exactly. exactly. Some of the things that you counter with methamphetamine for the longer term is when you see clients, they very, very often will complain of ADD. So either they say that they're using ADHD, and that's why they're using it, or, and, or, when they stop using methamphetamine, they complain that they cannot focus, and they need you to treat their ADHD, and this becomes very, very tricky uh, to try and discern, does this patient have a primary attention deficit disorder, or do they have consequences of their addiction and their use disorder, which looks like inattention, and, you know, our mentor, Uh, Darlene, she always tells us, she always says, everyone looks like they have ADHD and early sobriety. Everybody does. Everyone does. You're right. So you have to take the time to step away, gather a very good history, going back into the patient's childhood as to what was their, um, what were their symptoms of ADHD? What was, did they meet criteria as a child or as an adolescent? Did they require treatment? Is there a family history? What consequences did they have to being unable to focus, if so. And then if they really do meet criteria for an attention deficit disorder as an adult with a substance use disorder, especially a stimulant use disorder, but really any substance use disorder, um, really you want to treat with a non-stimulant. Now, there are there's some emerging data to discuss whether or not we should use stimulants for the treatment of stimulant use disorder much like we do use agonist therapy for opioid use disorder. Right. I always get this question, I don't know about you, but I always get this question like, well, shouldn't we use uh, methylphenidate or, um, you know, mm-hmm. acting, um, you know, Adderall for someone who has stimulant use disorder to stabilize them? The data is not convincing. You'll find people in both camps. So I think we do need to wait for more data. We do need to proceed very carefully. The risk of abuse and diversion is very, very high uh, in this population. And so probably better to start with non-stimulant medications and then uh, assess, send them to psychiatry, um, to your psychiatry colleagues who have a good understanding of addiction, preferably even an addiction psychiatrist. 
get their assessment to help you guide the treatment and then proceed very carefully. Um, and in the meantime, you know, try bupropion, try atomoxetine, and then maybe in the future, things like long-acting methylphenidate or lisdexamphetamine may play a role, but we just don't know yet. No, I love it. You're absolutely right. And th- these are very common. These patients often come in and they are asking for a prescription stimulant. And it's very challenging. I get this frequently. You need to do that. You need to sometimes just hold your ground and have this discussion that you're still early in your sobriety and we need to monitor you for a little bit longer. It's sometimes very hard as a physician that, you, you know, to get into these challenges sometimes with patients because they can be very difficult in that situation. You need to get a correct diagnosis. And, you know, you're right. Every Everyone has those symptoms, but I, I do that exact same thing. You know, we've been taught that just explain, yeah, just explain it to the patient. Right now, this is what, you, you know, you meet this criteria. You, you know, you need a longer period of sobriety before we can make an accurate assessment. Right. There. And in the meantime, you know, don't give up on patients. Just keep engaging them. Sometimes stimulant use disorder patients don't present. They don't present for treatment because they don't have significant withdrawal that requires or necessitates help. So they're not like opioid users who really, really suffer with their withdrawal or alcohol use disordered patients who need uh, medical management of withdrawal. So they often slip through the cracks and we only see them with their tertiary disease states once they've contracted HCV, HIV, have skin and soft tissue, abscesses and infection, infective endocarditis or osteomyelitis, dental abscesses and infections, etc. But um, if any opportunity we have to engage them uh, in a relationship to just have that non-judgmental um, approach to them and engage them in any way we can um, is really imperative. And in the meantime, be aware that they have lots of possible medical complications uh, due to their meth use, um, including um, more risk for skin and soft tissue infections because meth is vasoconstrictive. There are cardiomyopathy effects from long-term meth use. And then, of course, with any injection drug user, you get risks of um, infections. Infections, yeah. Right, right. And we didn't talk about the dental effects, but, of course, they're, um, they're, they're a huge issue. Yeah. So just we've got to keep working. Hopefully, we'll have a solution sooner than later. And in the meantime, we have some tools up our sleeve. And, uh, you know, we've got to keep keep vigilant. Unfortunately, methamphetamine is very cheap and it's very, um, very easily accessed. And there's some myth now that, you know, for heroin users to use methamphetamine is protective. So we have to educate and debunk some of those myths and, and, and keep educating ourselves as colleagues on how we can best help our patients. Yes, I, I hear so many myths from patients that, it, yes, if they co-use it, and then I had a patient who had never used it, but then was coming off her heroin and was told that the meth would make her opioid withdrawal symptoms less severe and started using meth and became horribly addicted to it. I mean, we've got to, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. All the, you know, all the reasons that people will start using and I think it's and I think it's important. You see this a lot, Paula, among our homeless populations. I mean, explain that a little bit. Many of them are using, and it, it doesn't. I mean, this isn't condoning the use, but this sometimes understanding why why these patients are using. Yeah, you know? I mean, I don't have data to to back up 
the, what I'm saying here, but I think it comes down to access. It comes down to access and culture. Yes. And culture. Um, you know, here in Salt Lake, methamphetamine is very, very, very cheap. It's the cheapest drug. It's even cheaper than tobacco, actually. And it's just pervasive. Everybody has it. And it's easy to get um, an extreme response to a very small amount. So we talked about how strong it is in the brain. So one hit of meth, typically people smoke it. You could smoke it. You can inject it. You can snort it. You can eat it. You know, any method just can give you a very, very drastic effect. So people who are experiencing homelessness, resources are low. They cannot afford necessarily, um, you know, cocaine or other, you know, drugs. And methamphetamine is just around, carries with it some of these myths, like it can protect you against heroin overdose, keeps you warm, it keeps you awake and alert so that you can watch your belongings and watch your personal self, that you're not at risk for being robbed or assaulted. That's the other thing I've heard is I use methamphetamine to keep awake because otherwise someone will steal all my stuff. Uh, So there are a lot of social reasons why methamphetamine has become mainstay in our persons who are experiencing homelessness. And um, unfortunately, it becomes a cultural and a generational drug. And I have both met many patients who are introduced to meth from their mothers, from their grandmothers, uncles, yeah. they start using methamphetamine at an extraordinarily young age. And uh, that's something that we need to address as a public health system, is how do we stop this kind of generational use? Yes, absolutely. And I think we have covered it. And that is our wrap. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.